Welcome back to the business of biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and I would describe today's guest as a tireless entrepreneur on an audacious and personal mission. Alex Blythe founded Lift Biosciences in 2016 after losing his mother to pancreatic cancer. Since that time, he's been busy raising funds to support the build-out of a roster of preclinical candidates under the NLIFT product umbrella, a family of allogeneic cell therapy candidates being developed with the goal of curing all solid tumors. This isn't Alex's first foray into the life sciences foundership. He's previously uh, launched Cello Business Sciences, the health and technology incubator Fast Track Ventures, and Nutrigenetics. He's also served as head of medical technologies at Cambridge Consultants and head of marketing sciences at the MSI Consultancy. Today on the Business of Biotech, we're going to get to know Alex, learn about the technology he's banking on to democratize solid tumor treatment, and dissect some of the problems he sees with the way biologics are currently studied and tested, specifically in mouse models. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Pleasure to be on the show, and thank you for that uh, very kind and generous introduction. My pleasure. I know I, I, we, you know, I, I didn't have time to sort of prattle through the entirety of your uh, of your LinkedIn uh, biography. Um, did I did I miss any important uh, kind of points along the way? You, you've your, your foundership, as we were talking pre-show. I mean, it's it started uh, pre-life sciences. You you were an IT guy, so I I know I missed some some things, but I, I tried to pick the most pertinent. No, it's all good. Yeah, I uh, I started my first uh, company when I was at university. It was a, a dot com. Uh, I built that up and and sold it and had that empty feeling of realizing that it didn't really matter very much. And so mm. I then decided I wanted to do something more meaningful and went and got myself a, a second degree. My first was in economics and second in biology and decided to move into the healthcare space and start uh, innovating in things that actually made a difference to people's lives. Uh, so that was uh, over 20 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So since you brought it up, we'll, we'll just start there. I mean, the, you, you, you got your degree in economics and then what was it four, four or five years later, maybe you went back and got a biology degree. Yeah, it's one of those embarrassing moments, Matt, where um, I'd I'd exited on a company, and so people were really wanting people understood the internet. So I got hired by a, a very reputable consultancy called Cambridge Consultants, who are quite famous in the UK for being behind some quite amazing innovations. Uh, and they mainly hire like uh, PhDs from Cambridge University, so it's quite a high caliber <laughs> sort of place. And uh, I got taken in there and they, they basically promoted me to head of medical technologies within like six months of being there. And I was 22 with all these people in their 30s who were reporting into me. And, uh, you know, you know, when you have that imposter syndrome where you're like, you know, this is just really wrong that I'm leading all these people and I haven't even got a biology degree and I'm heading up medical technology. So I said this to them. And so they kindly paid for me to do a second degree um, as a sort of tie up with Cambridge University and the Open University, so I could do it remotely. Um, so yeah, I, I, I owe them a lot. Yeah, no, the the imposter syndrome is very real. I recently had a conversation on this very show uh, with a with a CEO who's you know, biopharma CEO who's whose uh, take on that was they they started in consultancy, worked there for a little while, and the imposter syndrome became overwhelming because here they were advising, you know, the the leaders and founders and CEOs of of preclinical biologics companies 
and they had never done it themselves. So he, he just went out and founded a company. Now, if he goes back to the consultancy side, he'll feel, I'm sure, uh, very well prepared for that role. Interesting. I wonder how many of these feel. Yeah. 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 Um, was that a difficult transition to to uh, to go back to school and and consume consume biology and then pursue a career there after you'd been kind of plugged in in economics and IT? Um, well, I was used to things moving very fast. So the first observation was that things move very slowly. Um, mm. So that was hard to adjust to the very slow way of mo- moving. We have something that you'll be familiar with, Matt, called agile development in mm. software world. And I try and apply that to biotech world, by the way, um, to get things to move faster um, and there'll be less red tape and less sort of obsession with sort of sequential working and more parallel working. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't like it when things take unnecessarily long. And, you know, whereas in dot-com world, you were basically running ahead of your burn rate, as in running out of cash. Um, in biotech world, it's not just your burn rate. On top of that, it's the reality that there are millions of people dying each year of what you're trying to solve. And so, you know, I, I will point out to my team um, that when it comes to what we're doing, you know, there are about a million people a month dying of the sort of cancers that we are looking to be able to treat. And that's a very motivating way to stop people wasting time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, you know, I want to get into that when we, a little bit later in the conversation, I'm I'm taking some notes here. When we get into the the conversation around mouse models, I want, I want to pick your brain a little bit on the, the length of time and the way that the system is, you know, kind of built to enable, enable, and that's, that's a poor word choice because um, that's uh, you know, it it implies um, positivity, (laughs) but, but this, the system is what it is, and it's it's built in such a way that 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 time is is uh, efficiency, agile development. It's it's the system is not very accommodating, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I want to pick your brain a little bit later about um, what you in your role as as the leader at Lyft can do, what dials and, and buttons and levers you have to uh, accommodate agility. But before we get there, uh, I want to I want to talk talk about Lyft. I want to I want to learn the origin story. So as I Noted uh, in the introduction, you lost your mom to pancreatic cancer. Was that um, like was that singular sort of experience or moment uh, the motivating factor for you to turn around and launch a biopharmaceutical company? Uh, yes, it was because I'd spent um, you know I spent twenty years working now in healthcare, which surprises me when I say it now, um, and working for you know big pharma and biotechs on what you would call an oncology asset um you know i really found it was quite single track the way they thought they're always thinking about bear in mind they're all chemical companies originally most of them and they've become or the big ones have become you know pharmaceutical companies we know today and then the biotechs are trying to fit into the pharmaceutical companies who buy them ultimately mm. and so there's this sort of method of you find a um, find a target um, and then you design a, a molecule or an antibody sometimes a biologic to fit that um, and then you basically have this targeted therapy that will hopefully just 
go for the thing you want to destroy or intervene with the thing you want to intervene on and not affect the rest of the body. And, you know, that sounds very sensible when you're dealing with something like diabetes, where, you know, people are either not absorbing uh, the insulin properly or not producing it. And the idea of something like a, an insulin mimetic uh, to replace that insulin uh, was, you know, a fantastic breakthrough. And it was like taking a Swiss watch and just, just putting in the cog that was missing and getting the Swiss watch working again. Um, and that's beautiful. And, you know, many parts of science and medicine work like that. And we have to admire the targeted method. However, when it comes to cancer, it's a very different situation. If you can instead imagine a watch with ever-changing cogs and you can never get one cog to fit the other cog because they're always changing, mm -hmm. that's the reality of it. Or for another uh, you know, analogy, it's like trying to create a key to an ever-changing lock, but there are thousands of changing locks because these cells constantly mutate and change. And so the receptor site you're going for will change. And no sooner have you got rid of all the cells that have a receptor site like this, then all the ones that had a receptor site like this will start to proliferate and take over. And, you know, that the experience the everyday person will have of this is that their loved one will look like they're responding to therapy and they'll think it's going to be all good. And then the tumor will come back aggressively and kill them. And that happens very often. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what I saw with my mum. And, you know, she was even on um, the basically standard of care that was coming through. Um, so even like a Braxone, which I worked on actually with, with Celgene. And um, yeah, sadly, it, it didn't do very much, is the truth. And when you see that firsthand, it really hits home how targeted therapies fail because tumours adapt and they don't. Yeah. And I knew the pharma industry was not going to do it. And when I pushed the idea to them, I didn't get much response, even though I knew a lot of people. I even took it to some well-known cancer charities and offered it as technology for free to them. And they didn't want to run with it. They were basically asking that I take it to clinical trials and then they'll look at it, which obviously I pointed out that if I get something to clinical trials and it works, the, the whole world will want it. Um, so I was quite disappointed. And so weirdly, I had to um, give up what I was doing in my day job and life, as it were, and throw everything at let's be honest, a long shot. Sure. Um, and it was, you know, quite a thing. I think any normal person who'd gone through what I was doing and I was going through a separation as well uh, with my wife, um, you know, would have taken the money they had from that and put it into a house or something sensible like that. But um, I instead threw it all at doing this. Uh, when I started the odds where I put it all on a spreadsheet, I'm a very calculated risk taker, all the sequential things that had to happen. And the odds at the bottom were 5,000 to one. Uh, and uh, the crazy thing was I took this sensible approach and then thought, sod it, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and pushed into this. So it was, I don't know if crazy is the word. You, you generously said audacious. Maybe I'll borrow your language. Yes, it was audacious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go with that. I'm 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 going to stick with audacious anyway. I don't know you well enough yet to call you crazy. Um, <laughs> why the why the reception that you you know you mentioned that uh, you you took this idea uh, upline you know in the in the pharmaceutical establishment and uh, you know the reception was hey you know <laughs> you get a clinical trials maybe we'll take another look everybody knows you know that's a five thousand to one 
get, 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 getting the thing into clinical trials is a, is a, is a low odds game. Um, and, and maybe this speaks to just, as I was saying, the, I guess the structure of the system as it stands today, why was there an aversion to take a look, taking a look at, at your idea? And I'll ask this as a two-part question. I'm, I'm famous for asking multi-part questions. Why was there an aversion to taking a serious look at this idea within the establishment? And and maybe take that question as an opportunity to share with us what, what the idea is, you know, where the technology comes from. Sure. So unlike the way most people were thinking, um, you know, most, most cancer work focuses on the idea of how do we kill cancer cells or how do we understand cancer cells? Um, but what isn't so commonly thought about is something that comes about when your loved one dies of something, you know, the, the immediate thought that comes into your head is why my mum? And that made me then think, well, you know, why don't most people get cancer? And so then I started looking more and more into, you know, why don't most people get cancer? And I started to see that, you know, there are families that are well known about who have a history of cancer. But what's not thought about is on the other side of a normal distribution curve, you have people with no family history of cancer whatsoever. Mm. And you never hear about these people. So I started focusing very much on those people and trying to understand what it was, which led me to be thinking about the innate immune system because the adaptive immune system we all know from viruses and the recent COVID outbreak, um, you know, that's something that adapts in your lifetime and will learn as you go. And hence, it's very good to have a vaccine and teach it what to attack. But the reason people, you know, don't get cancer has nothing to do with their adaptive immune system the first time. Yeah. The second time that you don't get the same cancer strain, that could be your adaptive immune system. Mm -hmm. But the first time it's not. And any oncologist I speak to will agree with me on this. And yet everyone is focused on the adaptive immune system because that's what they know, because like the other therapies, it's a targeted system they can understand. And our industry is obsessed with targeted and mechanisms they can understand. The idea that there's something innate out there that looks after us and is actually destroying these mutating cells in our body every day successfully um, for the majority of people on the planet, you know, the, the 6 billion people on this planet who will never get cancer, is just very overlooked. And I was thinking very much about that. And I knew that the way the pharma industry operates, that they just would never look there because they don't go that early in where they're looking. They start with looking for a target. Whereas what I was looking at was something that was broad mechanism action and worked across killing all tumors because you don't have, you know, one particular, you know, innate white blood cell that kills tumors only in the liver and another one that only kills it in the pancreas, another one that only kills it in the lungs. Uh, and yet, if you were to listen to them and the way they break up what kind of cancer you've got and the idea that you treat it completely differently, that's how they all think. Yeah. And it, it goes back to where medicine came from, that really medicines come from surgery. And originally this started as, you know, a surgeon trying to take out a specific organ that had cancer or a, a part of it. And so we think of things as pancreatic cancer, liver cancer uh, in this sort of way. But actually, when I think of how to deal with things, you have to think above that. There's a layer above, and that means you could actually work on any solid tumor. And 
people just didn't think like that. The idea that you have a therapy as a platform that could destroy any solid tumour is A, not thought about by them, and B, is unthinkable. Yeah. And if you use the word curative, I worked for many big pharma companies as a consultant on new therapies that we were helping bring to patients. And they, they would ask me to remove the words uh, if we were looking at new things and new targets because they didn't think it was realistic. Right. And the problem with that is if you don't think something's realistic and you're not, you're not going to aim for it, and then if you're not going to aim for it, you're never going to get anything for it. And that's why only 5% of all the medicines currently in clinic have any hope of being curative. Yeah. 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 I guess, uh, you know, when you, when you put it that way, you, 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 you asked, uh, you asked yourself, uh, sort of rhetorically, if perhaps you were, you were crazy and I guess crazy is a perspective, right? Like there's a, there crazy depends on the perspective of the, uh, of the accuser. Um, Absolutely. Once the world was flat and the guy who said the world was round was crazy. Copernicus and so forth. Yeah. So where does the scientific foundation, uh, come from that supports lifts approach um so you know when, when you speak when you speak of the 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 innate immune system and that you know higher level and the and the six billion people uh in the world who who who, who don't have or, or won't get cancer um it occurs to me that perhaps you know it's it's a bit scary uh because of the, there's so much unknown within within the the pharmaceutical industry as we know it right now it's a bit scary to not focus on a specific cancer, a specific target, you know, a super finite clinical trial limited to a super finite number of people who you feel like you've got a chance of, of, of affecting. And when you take it up to that layer that, that you're speaking of, there's, there's, there's a lot of unknown. It's not, you know, perhaps well-studied science. Um, so where does a guy like you, who's, who's worked in the space for, for a while, knows how things work, has a, you know, a, a, an understanding of biology, um, and then decides he's going to launch a company. W- where do you find the science on which to build? Yeah, I think really um, my sort of contribution to this is being a lateral thinker and a sort of inventive problem solver. So I I seek from you know quite a broad base. So I studied a lot of papers and I think unlike a lot of people, you know, I don't restrict that to just publications in nature and cell and you know other things that are very established journals. Sometimes it's the more quirky smaller journals that have got some interesting things in them. Um so the sort of frontiers type ones. And uh I basically just kept looking for innate cell uh links to cancer and I found a number of different papers and even accounts going back to the ancient Egyptian Egyptians with Al Hillatop, who's credited with inventing the pillar, which I'm not so sure about. But uh, he was also a chief physician, I think, to Ramses II. Um, and he used to put bacteria into what they had slightly different words then, but essentially into cancers. And doing that excites the innate immune system to come and kill the bacteria, which neutrophils are particularly renowned for. And as the most plentiful white blood cell in your body is probably what they were observing. Um, And as they destroy the bacteria, they come across the cancer cells and they start killing those too, because they're in activation mode. Mm -hmm. And it was a very clever thing to do, uh, particularly thousands of years ago. And this was then picked up by um, other people along the way. But I think 
someone called Covey is very worth mentioning. So Covey at the you know um, earlier part of last century was working on Covey's toxins, where he was in effect putting bacteria similarly into wounds. Um, in the end, he had to use dead bacteria um, to get it through the regulatory system. But he was actually getting curative results, but they were quite uh, up and down. And what happened is, is that, you know, that got sidelined a bit because chemical companies moved into being pharmaceutical companies and they managed to push the regulators somehow towards the idea that consistency of outcome is better than having a few cure, cured patients and a lot that may go another way. Uh, so they somehow managed to get their poorer drugs really into play because they were consistently the same at least and could be controlled. And I think that appealed to regulatory mentalities. Um, and, you know, some very dirty chemo drugs then came into the market and dominated and Covey's toxins disappeared. Um, so I was very intrigued by that. And I then found a piece of work done by Professor Zheng Sui, where he had found a mouse that he had given sarcoma S180, which is a lethal tumor to give a mouse a bone cancer that will kill it within a month. Mm -hmm. And this mouse resisted. Uh, and so he gave it 10 times the dose and it resisted again. Then he, he upped it to even a hundred times the dose and it resisted. Um, now, uh, this is a really silly thing, but most people in our industry, if they find that and they're trying to do some mouse work, they'll just get rid of that mouse because it's actually getting in the way of their study. But he didn't do that. He was intrigued by this mouse and a little bit like lots of people probably found Petri dishes with bits of mold in and just washed them up in the sink. And Alexander Fleming didn't do that. He investigated it. That's what Zheng Sui did. And I think we owe him a credit for that because he got this mouse to breed and he noticed the progeny had the same ability, which showed it was genetic, which showed it was the innate immune system. And from there, he then gave mice tumors and he then took the progenitor innate cells of um, the descendants of what we affectionately became known as supermouse and was able to actually do an adoptive cell transfer into those um, mice that would otherwise have died of the tumor and got a hundred percent cure rate and all the other mice that didn't get it died within 28 days as you'd expect um, and really i think that it was a phenomenal piece of work to do that it was then repeated by some other labs who got similar results and when i saw that it really stood out and i was i was thinking this guy's really got something here and sadly it'd been completely forgotten it was in like 2003 and 2006 these papers um and i picked up on it in sort of 2014 15 and started when i was investigating so no one had done anything with this for years uh, really. And um, how does that happen? Like, how, how does well, that happen? It's the story wow. of penicillin as well, right? Penicillin got left for a, yeah, over you a decade. That, right. You alluded to that with the, the mold in the Petri dish. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a long time ago, right? I mean, that was a long, long time ago. So uh, maybe that's yeah. not an excuse, Alex, that it was a long, long time ago, but I like, like you're, you're throwing dates around like 2004, 2006. In this day and age, you know, when information is as readily available and accessible as it is, um, and, and something that intriguing, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, but what you just said is, you know, in, in, intriguing. It's got to be intriguing, right? So how, how does it how does it just get pushed aside, left by the wayside, brushed off? 
Well, unfortunately, I think there is a sort of um, arrogance in science where if you're not in one of the top journals, you know, it's somehow not believed. And yet when actually reviews have been done of how repeatable experiments are in these top journals, they don't perform particularly better than anything else. And they're all pretty poor, to be honest, uh, and it comes to reproducibility. Um, but there is this snobbery. Um, and so it just didn't get in one of those big journals. And that's because the big journals are chasing what everybody wants to read about. And what everyone wants to read about is what's already on trend and the herd is running after. Mm. And so once the herd starts running in one direction, which lately has been, you know, CAR T cells, um, which was autologous, and now they start to realize that's ridiculously expensive and are switching to allogeneic NK cells. Um, you know, they all just start running in the same direction. And this herd breeds that papers get published and things that are on trend. VCs then read those papers, so they're more likely to get funded. Then governments get behind it, and they're more likely to give funding for things in that direction. Then people within universities who are trying to get funding for their departments and are obligated to produce a certain amount of papers, guess what? If they want to get their paper published, they've got to publish on that as well, because that's what the journals want. And so you've got this horrible situation where it basically just spirals off in one direction, whether that's the right direction or not. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, very hard to go against the grain and come out of something really different and get backing. Um, so it, it is a real problem in our industry. And the, the I'm sorry to say, but the system is broken. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need to know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah. How are you? Um, you know, I mean, the words words like underdog are coming to mind. Uh, Anti-establishment, right? Um, against the grain is a good way to put it. Uh, and, and, and where you saw, you know, uh, maybe not flat out rejection, but apprehension uh, within the, the pharmaceutical establishment and where you're seeing, you know, what appears to be intriguing, promising, good science, sort of just being um, brushed off or, 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 or let, let, you know, let left by the wayside. Uh, that's also got to be true. And I think you were just, just maybe going there in, in the VC markets. So how do you take something that, you know, is perhaps, um, Challenging to 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 move a ball that's difficult to move move down the field uh, in, in in the parameters of our of our industry today. How do you take something like that on the on the fundraising trail and uh, and get and get folks to back you? What's what's the or just tell me that story? What's the difference there? Like what's the difference? Are you finding some uh, like-minded anti-establishment uh, VCs who are, are are willing to put put skin in the game? Yeah, you know, I don't even think of them as having to be anti-establishment. I just think they have to be able to think for themselves. And I think what I'm looking for is the special 1%. You know, it's hard to take 99 no's and know that you're going to get the 1% and you're going to find them. And they're the special ones. And 
you can knock on the door of certain companies and they'll say no, and you're just talking to the wrong person in that company. So, I mean, I I did try to get money from charities originally. I even offered them the technology, as I said. That didn't work. Um, I then went to German Merck, who did a speed grant, and actually, you know, to their, you know, very much to the, applaud them. They just gave me the money to start things uh, with no ties, just because they thought it sounded interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the German and the uh, some of the uh, Scandinavian-based pharmaceutical companies have a much more admirable perspective on this, and they behave in a more community-like manner. Um, so, you know, Nova Nordisk is also, as a foundation, does excellent work. Um, and so they actually backed it and got it going. I then got backed by MedCity, who were bringing together London universities with SMEs that had something interesting. So I was able to get the lab work done there, and so I was actually able to validate my patent. So it's an amazing thing, but I basically went out on the, a limb and came up with the technology idea of rather than taking the neutrophils out of somebody who had an amazing uh, innate killing in them and then giving those to somebody who's less fortunate, which was the original sort of model, I think, that uh, Sui was working to off his mouse. Uh, instead, I was taking their stem cells, so it becomes something scalable that you can turn into a patentable product called an ATMP, mm-hmm. um, which means it's an advanced therapeutic medicinal product. And that means you can raise money for it. And so I took this approach. I patented it without the data. I then had 12 months to get the data or the patent falls over. And within that time, I had to raise the money, get the scientists, get King's College on board. And they did all of it. And we we managed to just get the data in for the patent with three weeks left. Mm. Um, so it was a crazy situation. And once I got that, uh, I did some crowdfunding and some very, you know, brave people backed me, really. Um, and they came in very early. And I think it's very laudable. And I think it's very wrong in our industry that the people who often come in early um you know vcs will ar- arrogantly call them dumb money but you know they're actually the most laudable money and i think often the smart money because they're able to make a judgment so far out yeah. uh, and i think they deserve a lot of admiration and then finally matt to be honest i looked for bold entrepreneurs who'd been there and done it and had their own mind and i was very fortunate i found uh, jonathan milner who's uh, you know, founded Abcam from Cambridge, and that's a multi-billion-pound company PLC now um, that he built up. And he had his own mind, you know. And so when I pitched to him what we were doing, he got it, um, and so he backed us. Um, as did some other, you know, brilliant scientists who also have their own minds, like uh, Tony DeFugrels, who's who's actually the guy who originally came up with the messenger RNA vaccine approach. Um, that obviously helped us so much in COVID. Um, he came up with it for Ebola originally, and then it got reused from Moderna. So, you know, a really brilliant guy, uh, and he backed me as well. Um, and uh, then people like Kazoo, so Patrick Burgermeister at Kazoo and, and Downing and others came in behind that. And so really I owe this to the, the brave few, really. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's terrific. What, um, what, what's giving you the most confidence right now uh, at this stage in the game? Like what, what's, you, you mentioned from the outset, you know, you ran the spreadsheet, ran the numbers, 5,000 to one odds. Um, 
what what's giving you the confidence at this at this juncture at lift you know you're you're preclinical is is it the science the advance let's have you moved the science to the point where you know it's it's showing more great promise is it the fact that you've got you know some some financial backing and uh potential for more there like what what what's kind of driving your game right now yeah it's a really good point i mean there's three things that you've you've got to have really um you've got to have money like you're saying and we obviously did a a fairly big round recently um so we did about 7 million US dollars uh, on the last, and we're building up to a, a 30 million. Um, we've got, I've now got a great team around me. Um, I've got a fantastic CSO who's really making the right things happen, has got experience, has brought two other cell therapies through to the clinic um, and is leading the team there. And we're making just terrific progress. Um, so that's been brilliant. And then third thing, of course, is, the results, you know, we're getting great results in we're destroying um, very difficult tumor types um, in what you call a tumoroid model, which is a patient's tumor that's been taken and then cultured up. Um, so it's a heterogeneous mix. And then you test it in a 3D environment and you test how well your therapy is at, at killing that. And, you know, we pretty much completely wiped the floor with some of the most challenging tumor models, including. Um, squamous cell non-small cell lung cancer in a model that you know the gold standard uh the checkpoint inhibitors have become very big recently uh Keytruda really d- didn't do anything to and so that patient in reality would would sadly probably die um and of course i don't know what happened to the patient we got that tumor fragment from um, but we completely destroyed that. So, you know, that would have been a complete remission for that patient had they been on NLIFT. Mm-hmm. And so it's yeah. results like that that really make me very confident. We're getting many, many more coming in constantly. So we're on a we're on a high at the moment. That's that's great. Uh good to hear. The the uh the the product, um, the the ATMP uh that you've you know worked worked so hard to establish. What does the and I and I'm going to ask you to kind of put your uh, forward thinking cap on, right? Look into your crystal ball a little bit. But when you talk about the democratization of, you know, cell therapies to, to cure solid tumors, that's a just, it's a giant market. You know, there's a great, great need in terms of volume out there. Um, so, so moving from where you are now, you know, from the lab through clinical and God willing beyond, what uh, what's your what's your manufacturing plan or paradigm look like? I mean, uh, you know, is that something that uh, I mean it would have to be produced in such great volume that you'd you know probably turn to every, question turn turn to every outsourcer in the uh, in the cell in the cell therapy space to to help make happen. And again, I know that's a very long continuum from where where you are today to you know the the potential for commercialization. I'm just curious what that manufacturing. Um, infrastructure would need to look like it's not a long way at all Matt, and it's the question that any sensible investor or vc asks um so to be honest you know one of the big concerns in cell therapies has been how much they cost to produce and the autologous ones which means um it's from yourself they recondition the cells and they put them back into you mm-hmm. are ridiculously expensive you know it's like three hundred thousand pounds a patient um, which is in my book, you know, there's no point curing cancer if it's unaffordable. 
Um, I know it's done great things, but it, it's really not enough. Um, and so the cost has to come down. And so something that's very nice about our allogeneic therapy, which obviously means it's from a donor, uh, is that we can make it off the shelf. And actually, you know, we're doing an iPSC version, and that means an induced pluripotent stem cell version, which means essentially you can get infinite expansion off your donor. So at the moment, realistically, of you know, hemopoietic stem cells, you could expect maybe 50 to 100 patients to be treated off one donor. We could get to that. Um, and as a result, you know, you're talking about something that's very simple to manufacture for us, actually. Uh, we're very lucky that we have such a simple way of producing things. We're not doing lots of gene editing um, in this first generation therapy of ours. So, you know, it is something where we could hopefully get to a sort of 50,000 to 80,000 price bracket per patient, which I know anyone listening thinks, God, that's a huge amount of money, but that's a massive step down from other cell therapies. Mm -hmm. um, then the iPSC version and I guess the you know, car version, uh, we would instead be looking at a price that could be even lower than that. Um, it does become a bit more complicated with those, but they're second generation. So we're coming to market with a very simple to produce first generation that will be a breakthrough for patients where 97% of them will currently die from pancreatic cancer within three years. Um, and then we will follow up with these other, if you like, more affordable, even more affordable therapies that are a bit more complex. And yes, there is a bit more involved, but hence they come later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to, uh, we're, we're going to run short on time because I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I'm not, uh, <laughs> not, not sticking to my, my bullet points as well as I should be. So I want to shift gears a little bit and, uh, and talk about, um, some of the, what, what I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the way that you're, you're working within the established sort of expectations of regulatory bodies that, uh, and, and the, the, the pharmaceutical sort of infrastructure, um, and it takes a long time. You know, you, you said earlier, it, it takes too long. You want to be, be able to apply, you know, agile development as, as was done in the software world uh, here, here in biopharma. Um, but to some degree that's limited, like your ability to, to, to move quickly is, is it's kind of checked and balanced and regulated by, well, re regulatory bodies for, uh, for one. Um, and other institutions. I mean, it's, you know, regulated by the venture capital that's available. It's regulated by the interest in, uh, in, in your technology by, or, or from pharmaceutical partners. What, what do you have control of Alex? Like when you, when you think about like what you can do as the leader of Lyft to, you know, throttle up, throttle, you know, throttle down when you need to, but throttle up and, and, and shift into the gears you need, you, you want to shift and to move quickly. What, what can you do? Uh, I think the first thing is to run things in parallel as much as possible. So your manufacturing points, I have manufacturing running in parallel with work there to save us time later. So it's, it's having a, a view on the end goal and knowing you don't want to be held up later once you know you've got something curative and then you don't know how to produce it, it would just be poor show. So that's the first piece. Um, I think the second piece is having the right people in terms of both team and suppliers who are brilliant and can get it right first time because you repeating things is a waste of time as well. So that's really important that you're, you've got the best people you possibly can and those people get better and better the, the 
more you can pay them, the bigger brand you are, the better results you've had. Um, and then I think the third one is probably a little bit um, my design, which is, you know, sometimes people can get a bit too hung up on doing everything very procedurally. Um, and so actually our labs at Lyft, I try to keep as, as um, a place where you're not having to follow all the procedures in the same way and you can do things quickly. Um, and if we have an idea, we can quickly test it. And it's deliberately not held up by lots of process. And we're doing that so we can test things, see if it works. And then if it works, we will put a protocol to it and we'll outsource it to uh, a lab to then, you know, do it, if you like, more seriously. Um, and that way we can stay agile ourselves. Um, and yet we can stick to our timelines of getting to market because we are outsourcing all that work that is on what I call the critical path. Um, and I think that helps a lot. And then taking other work streams where, you know, suppliers will go through lots of paperwork to get it done. And again, if you do it in-house, you can do it very quickly and just test a few different things. So they're the main ways I do it. But you do make an interesting point on there is a lot of red tape. And I do think there is a problem when it comes to therapy areas where so many people die that, you know, you will be told that the reason you can't move quickly to get into patients is because of ethics. But of course, is it ethical to actually then give this person nothing because you haven't quite got it to the top GMP grade you need it at? Right. Uh, yet, when 97% likelihood is they're going to die, is that ethical? You know, and if you bear in mind that GMP is something where you can go down the street and buy some sweets, put them in your body through your mouth, and uh, you know they're a couple of couple of pence those cost, and you know that's gone through GMP. Of course, our GMP is much higher because we're bypassing the stomach, as it were, and it's it's IV. Um, but still, you know, I think the scale up in how hard it is when you're dealing with things like we are in cancers, I, I think is, is something that needs to be looked at. Um, I think if you're giving a medicine to somebody who is, you know, otherwise healthy, like a diabetic patient we mentioned earlier, absolutely. But when you've got a situation where a patient's dying otherwise and the doctor themselves might do procedures that are very extreme in those situations with their clinical judgment, uh, where it, it will be very far from GMP, what they do. Sure. Um, the fact that when you have then something that's a product, the standards are so much ridiculously higher, and we're going to have millions of people die in the meantime while we're waiting to get through all these standards. You know, there, there's something just doesn't sit quite right there. Right. Yeah. Understood. Um, that's yeah. And and little. I mean, uh, on that level, there's you know you you explain to me what you can do to sort of throttle up and throttle down and manage uh, speed and agility within the the four walls of of lift. Um, on that regulatory level, it's it's a bit helpless, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit. Uh, is it? Is there? Uh, I don't know. Is there a, a driver of of change? Is there a you know a a, a consortia of, uh, of of folks like you who who have any who can maybe have any effect on that paradigm? I think through industry associations, but I think the emphasis would need to shift to ethics being not about if somebody died because of the drug, but if somebody died. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a subtle distinction, but my point to you is this. If a regulator has cleared something and then it goes and kills a patient, yeah, that regulator will 
in effect, that is shame on them. That's the way it's seen because they were meant to protect people. Yeah. And that's what's really driving this, that they don't want to fail people. However, if it was the situation that, you know, because they took longer to do it, all those people died anyway, you start to question it. And so I think what needs to be the focus is how do you bring down the number of people who die in this area full stop? And then you have to take a cost benefit analysis of whether something's ready to be tested. And uh, if the likelihood of it working, um, you know, is higher uh, in likelihood of saving their life than not taking it, uh, then, you know, that should be done. And I think it's taking that massive view of life overall rather than just life that you can be blamed for, which is kind of where the regulator is at the moment. And it's not their fault. They've been kind of put there. Sure. No, it's uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's sticky for sure. I can't help but think of, I mean, honest to God, last night, last night, my, I have a 15 year old daughter and she said, Dad, let's watch a movie. I said, great. You picked the movie. And uh, I hadn't seen it before, but we sat down and watched The Fault in Our Stars. Have you read the book or seen the movie, The Fault in Our no, Stars? No, I will do. What's it about? Well, it's a, it's sort of a, a you know a teenage coming of age film, but it's about a you know a, a couple of kids who fall in love. They're both terminally ill uh, with, with cancer, diff- different types of cancer. But it's a it's a good. I mean, it's a good story. It's not uh, you know it it appeals to my fifteen year old daughter, but it's a it's a good story. And there's a Willem Dafoe is actually in it and he plays sort of the protagonist and he, uh, he, he, he brings up at one point in the movie, the, the trolley problem, you know, like this classic, uh, pro this, this classic, um, I guess, I don't know, thought exercise, uh, where if, uh, you know, if, if you, if you're, if you're observing a trolley, a runaway trolley, that's about to take five people out, and you have a lever at your disposal that can divert the trolley, but the trolley will then hit one person. Do you pull the lever? You know, that what is I mean? a brilliant analogy for what I'm talking about. I can't yeah. think of it's. It's just it's it's funny. We I, we watched this movie yesterday, and as you're talking, I'm thinking that that's the trolley problem that Willem Dafoe talked about in the in the Fault in Our Stars. It, it because is because then you're personally responsible for that person's death in a way because that was your well, in, in the regulator's case, it's their job. Uh, well, they're not responsible for the, you know, 97% of people who are already dying every year. Right. Um, and that is the big problem here. That is the elephant in the room. Yeah, it's not easy, not easy to solve. Um, all right, in the time we have remaining, we, if, if we have any time remaining, this is, is going to be a long one, folks. I, I may put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. It's going to be a long one. But I, I, I do want to talk to you about mouse models because I know you have a, a strong opinion on that. And, and it occurs to me um, it's, it's an interesting, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I guess, uh, situation when I look at it uh, at face value because, as you explained earlier in the conversation, uh, the mouse model sort of bore out the science that you're pursuing, right? The discovery of, of mice um, that were, that had a level of innate uh, ability to, to ward off cancer. Um, at the same time, you have uh, sort of a love hate relationship or a mostly hate relationship <laughs> or perspective on, on mouse models. Tell me about that. Why, why is that? Why do you suppose, um, well, first, tell me why you know. First, tell me what what, what your what what your I guess struggle is with uh, with using mouse models 
to demonstrate uh, success in, in yeah. medical research? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. We've already shown the idea of uh, adoptive transfer of um, neutrophil progenitors works in mice. That was the early work that was done, but that was mouse immune cells being put in another mouse, and that works. Mm, okay. Um, so the model makes sense there. However, in order to get into clinic and have an IND filing, you need a mouse in vivo model. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you, you show fate within the mouse, that how long the cell lasts and you know, where it goes, uh, and that it's not toxic to the mouse. Now, that, that's not a problem for us, actually. Our neutrophils don't attack healthy tissue, whether it's a mouse or human, they're very well behaved. Um, are cytotoxic alpha neutrophils. So that's not the problem, but trying to show efficacy in the mouse really is a problem because we're not trying to cure cancer in a mouse with human cells. We're trying to cure it in a human. And when you put human cells in a mouse, they are not very comfortable. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, they don't get the right chemokines and growth factors to mature into activated neutrophils. Um, and so they don't do such a great job as they would do in a human, ironically. So it's actually harder for us to get results in a mouse than in a human. Now, hmm. that turns on its head what has always been known historically, which is it's easier to cure cancer in a mouse with a small molecule or an antibody than it is in a human. Yeah, I've heard uh, that like I've, I've heard that at least four dozen times uh, since, I, yeah. since I started this podcast. And that's been, you know, the logic of the past. But it, it, with cell therapies, it's different uh, because the cells are really not comfortable in, in the mouse. Um, but either way you cut it, whether you're saying the mouse is going to be better or the mouse is going to be worse, I think the key point is the mouse is not a very good model for a human being. And when you look back at the re retrospective data, the ability of a mouse model uh, to show a responder and then you get response in a clinical trial in a human the ability of it to predict that is 8.5%. I mean, that's incredibly poor. Yeah. The new technologies in tumoroid models, which are from a real tumor, from a real patient, they find that their predictive power in solid tumors is 80 to 90%. So like 10 times as effective. Surely we should be recognizing this new technology. And when it comes to judging the efficacy of a therapy, when you're looking at the cost benefit of, do we allow this therapy in for its IND filing in to have a clinical trial? That should be what the focus is on going forward, particularly for innate cell therapies. And uh, yeah, that's my, my gripe and my mission as it were. And I, I think people are coming around to it slowly, but not as fast as you might think. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I think about the mouse models and I think about, uh, you know, success with mouse models where there is success. Um, just traditionally, as you said, in small molecule, uh, in monoclonal antibodies. And I see that as a, you know, it's a, it's a great PR slash IR tool for, for biopharma companies to be able to go out and say, you know, look at all the great things that we're able to do in, in mouse models. Um, yeah. what, what, so if if there's another approach, if there's another paradigm, if there's some other standard, I guess, by which to, you know, move uh, move into be into IND and beyond, um, what what is it like? What 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 do we replace that great uh, cheerleading point around mouse models with? Yeah, I think it's definitely the tumoroid model. So these three D tumoroid models are a very good representation of a tumor. You know, you are in effect testing your drug product 
directly on the tumour without putting the rest of the patient at risk, as it were, um, which I think is a very fitting way of testing something prior to going into a patient. Uh, in fact, you know, there is a lot of evidence suggesting that a very good way to select the right patients is to actually, you know, run a, a model, um, an organoid model of that patient's tumour, test your drug against it, and then choose whether you should go into that patient or not based on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's seen as that correlated. Um, and so I think that is the future. Some people have said to me, why don't you try a primate model as in a, a monkey model? Um, and, and I just don't think that's going the right direction. It's, it adds another year, uh, poor monkey. And uh, you know, I just don't think it's ne- necessary in, in the case of many therapies where, I mean, look, you know, we are something that has come from a, a backlog of, you know, granular site transfusion therapy has been done for 50 years safely. Um, and we are in effect a variation on that. So it's not like there isn't a safe precedent that's known. So it's just completely overdone to resort to having to do all of that. Yeah. 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 You, you say poor monkey. It's no joke. I, I anticipate that, uh, that there would probably be better public reception to the tumoroid model than monkeys or mice for that matter. I know people have a, you know, propensity to uh, become affectionate toward charismatic, charismatic megafauna like uh, monkeys with their, with their big eyes. But, you know, there's a, you know, I guess a, a significant population that would probably prefer to see no one get hurt. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's a humane thing to do. We move to a time where we don't have to test in so many animals. I think that's the right direction of travel for both humans and animals, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Alex, I've, uh, I've, I've kept you far longer uh, than, than I anticipated. And I apologize if you had to get onto a meeting, uh, what, 12 minutes ago. Okay. Um, but what haven't in, in, in the remaining moments here, what, what haven't I, I asked you? I, I feel as though I could continue to ask you probing questions and challenging questions for another hour. Uh, unfortunately, my producer doesn't give me that much time. So we may have to do a part two, but uh, what would you wrap up with? If, you know, if there's something that I, I, I should have asked you that I didn't or a thought that you were eager to share. Um, I think the only thing is that, uh, I mean, we'll be going into a, a, a big round next year. Um, We'll be then talking to VCs again and hoping that the VC community, um, you know, welcome things that are different. Uh, I think they are moving more to innate allogeneic now and recognizing those things. Um, you know, and also I'm, you know, having been one of the tadpoles, if you like, that made it to being a little frog that got out of the pool. Uh, I have actually set up a new fund called the Mission Fund, which is actually oh, yes. support companies trying to do what I had to go through and make their life a bit easier, and particularly to try and get as many good things in solid tumors as we can that are potentially curative into clinical trials. Um, and so, yeah, we're looking to award gr- uh, money of 250 to 500K to potentially therapeutic early stage uh, companies where we would basically do a um, killer experiment for them and actually see if what they're proposing actually works and then help run the uh, the fund off the back of that and actually run their, their Series A um, to help them. So, yeah, that's something that uh, we are also embarking on, which will be released over the summer. 
Yeah. I, you know, I knew there was, that's why I asked you, what did I forget to ask you? Cause I, 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 I read about that and I'm, and I'm about to ask you about it. And I think that's a, that's a very cool approach because, you know, in a lot of ways it addresses a lot of the themes that we talked about today, right? Like it addresses, it, it's helping other, uh, experimental level companies, uh, move through some of these sort of hurdles and barriers that, that you've moved through. Um, and you've got some VC experience too, don't you? Did you, you, did you, you, did you launch? Well, v- I've been involved as uh, angel investing and that sort of thing before. Not, not, I think on the grandiose scale, I call a VC, but uh, yeah, I do have experience in that. And the people who are involved in the mission fund are very experienced VCs. Yeah. So uh, I'm the sort of entrepreneur of the group really. Yeah. Um, but right. I'm, I'm, if you like, uh, the chairman behind it, the guys actually doing the day-to-day work are, are typical uh well they're not typical they're exceptional vcs yeah where can uh where can listeners get more information on that the mission fund yeah they can uh go online and look up the mission fund.com yeah <laughs> pretty pretty intuitive i like it good yeah, job <laughs> and and the mission fund yeah that's that's uh that's what we're at, missionfund.org as well yeah very good thank you yeah been a good. pleasure thanks so much Alex, thank you for joining me. I uh, I really appreciate it. It was a very fun and educational conversation. I appreciate you taking the time for us. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Matt. So that's Lyft Biosciences founder and CEO, Alex Blythe. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Search up Cytiva's Biotech Accelerator at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech, where you'll find a library of resources to support your clinical journey. Visit us at bioprocessonline.com where you can subscribe to my never spammy and always valuable newsletter. And if you enjoy conversations with biotech innovators like Alex, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, leave us a review. And as always, thanks for listening.